Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, it is such a blessing to gather together to worship you in truth and spirit. We pray that our minds would be fastened upon your greatness, the greatness of the salvation that you have blessed us with, and that you would put a desire in our heart to grow in grace as we hear your truth proclaimed this day. We thank you for the forgiveness that we just sang about that we have in Christ. We thank you that he is our great Savior, that he has paid our debt in full so that we are pardoned from all of our sins and they are no longer remembered. How we rejoice in that wonderful truth. And we pray, Father, that as a result that we would desire for others to know this truth, that others would come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, and that we would be faithful in praying for their salvation and sharing the gospel with those that we come in contact with. How we pray for those that even sit here this morning that do not know Christ in a personal saving way. Pray that you would remove the binders from their eyes Give them eyes to see and ears to hear your truth, and we pray that you would be pleased to do a work of grace in their life, of bringing them to know Christ in a saving way. We pray that we as Christians, Father, would grow in sanctification as we seek to apply your truth to our life. We know, Father, that we live in a wicked day, but we are to be light in this world, Father. And we know that light exposes the darkness, and we pray that we would be faithful to the task that you have given us, Father, so that this world would be changed by those who know Christ. We pray, Father, that you would work not only in your church to bring a revival, but, Father, that you would use your church to go into the world so that an awakening would take place. How we long to see your grace flood the nations so that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Pray for those that are unable to be with us this day. You know their reasons and we, their needs, and we pray that you minister to them and that you would bring them back to us soon. Bless our time together and everything that would be said and done would be pleasing in your sight. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen. Take with me and turn to Luke chapter, I mean Matthew chapter 6, and we will again look at verses 16 through 18. Verses 16 through 18. Following the Lord's prayer, Jesus says these words, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to be men to, men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in heaven, who is the secret place, and that your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly." 
Last week we began to look at this subject of fasting and praying and I gave you a number of examples in the Old Testament of individuals as well as national prayer and fasting. And these were times due primarily to difficult decisions that arose among people and among the nations. Now often it was due to God's hand of judgment upon them. And at other times, it was due to serious problems and difficulties in their life. Now, fasting was sometimes commanded by the priest or the king or the prophet. Other times, it was voluntary and even ritualized in Scripture. But it definitely took place as we saw, especially in the life of of God's people, the Israelites. But it happened also in other nations, as we saw there in Nineveh, who was under the judgment of God, and they repented. Author Pink says, Fasting was an expected discipline both in the Old and New Testament eras. Fasting and prayer can restore the loss of our first love, of course referring to Revelations 2, 4, and 5, for Christ and result in a more intimate relationship with Him. Fasting is a biblical way to truly humble yourself in the sight of God. Now pertaining to what author Pink says there, we can ask ourselves a few questions there. Do we feel that we have lost our first love? Are we as close to the Lord as we would like to be? If the answer is no, then I think it's good that we would be fasting and seeking the Lord, as he says there. Also, we see that fasting in that biblical way is truly humbling ourselves. And we need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord because we know that God does not hear the prayers of those who are prideful, but those who humble themselves in his sight. So the very nature of fasting seems to suggests that there is a problem, most likely a spiritual problem, because eating is something that is normal, a normal part of life. So when we don't eat, then something has interrupted our normal part of life. So therefore, to abstain from food implies that something is not normal. Something has interrupted our pattern of life which can be something that would be good. Fasting should bring us into a deeper communion with our Lord, causing us to focus on that which is spiritual instead of that which is material. We are bombarded by that which is material, right? We're bombarded by this world. This world is constantly seeking to squeeze us into its mold. So therefore, we need to pray. We need the strength to be able to go against that. And one of the ways is having a deeper communion with God. And that often comes through prayer and fasting. Jonathan Edwards said, Under special difficulties and in great need, or if we have a need for any particular mercy for yourself or for others, set apart a day for secret prayer and fasting by yourself alone. And let the day be spent 
not only in petitions for the mercies that you desire, but in searching your heart and in looking over your past life and confessing your sins before God. I think those are very practical, biblical instructions that he gives there. And of all people, he ought to know because God used him, of course, to bring about a great awakening here in America. And I think if we ever want to see an awakening take place in our lifetime, then I think it would be good for us to adhere to what he says there. Fasting includes repentance and prayer for restoration. Restoration individually as well as corporately. And it signifies humility. It signifies spiritual renewal in our life and a realization that God must work in our lives and in this particular situation to bring about a true heart's desire. We have looked at those examples, not all of them, but we looked at a number of examples there in the Old Testament last week. If you were not here, I'd encourage you to go back and you can listen to that sermon online. But it would be great a great mistake to think that those occasions only took place in the Old Testament. There are numerous examples as well in the New Testament. We see right there in the beginning of the New Testament, a lady that we addressed just a few weeks ago as we were experiencing the Advent season, Hannah, Anna I mean, Anna that stayed there at the temple all of her life after her husband passed away, most likely, uh, she, it says 84, I mean, yeah, 84, that can be her life age, or it may be the years that she spent at the temple. Um, she evidently married very young. Her husband died when she was very young, so she could have been 104. You can't be dogmatic because it can be interpreted either way. But we see in Scripture that it says that she never left the temple after her husband died. She gave herself to what? She gave herself to worshiping through fasting and praying. Can you imagine that? Eighty-four years there at the temple, constantly praying and fasting for the Messiah to come. She is called a prophetess. There's not very many prophecies in the Bible. Uh, there's disagreement over how many. Some say seven and some as many as 11. But we see here in the scripture that she is called a prophetess. And it points to her constant devotion to the Lord there at the temple. And her, devo uh, her uh, devotion was rewarded. How was it rewarded, children? She got to see the Messiah. She got to hold the Messiah there at the temple. Her prayers were finally answered. I mean, how faithful are we in continuing to pray our prayers? Uh, we often give up after a short time. She continued for the whole time she was at the temple praying prayer of the Lord to come. And her prayers were heard and answered. Now there's also other 
instances we mentioned last week of Jesus fasting 40 days and 40 nights before his bout with Satan there in the wilderness. And he continued to fast and pray. We don't know how often he fasted and prayed because often it was secretly. I mean, not even the disciples may have known when he was fasting and praying. And we see from this passage that he instructs his disciples to be faithful in it. We also see there in the book of Acts that Cornelius eagerly desired for more light from the Lord. Now here, here was an unconverted Jew and he was praying and he was praying to God to give him light. If you're unconverted, that's what you need to do. You need to pray that God would give you light, that God would open your eyes. And that's what Cornelius did. And what did God do? God sent Peter to him. And Peter shared the gospel with him. But he was fasting and praying when God heard his prayer. We also see the church there at Antioch fasted and prayed as they sought to appoint God's leaders to send out as missionaries there in Acts chapter 13. Paul and Silas were the ones, of course, sent out. And we know that they were to establish churches And they themselves fasted and prayed as they sought where God would have them to go there in Acts chapter 14. And there's other passages in the New Testament which instructs us to pray and fast. So we see that it's very clear in both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament that there is this teaching of fasting and praying. There are some that say we don't have the obligation of fasting and praying because there's no command in the Bible, but there are these occasions and examples and precepts. And as Jesus says here in this particular verse, telling his disciples, and not only those disciples, but I believe the disciples throughout the ages to continue to fast and pray. Now, the mere absence of food is not fasting in a biblical sense. I know some people will fast to simply lose weight. Well, that's not fasting in a biblical sense. As author Pink says, I may observe a weekly fast and yet not fast at all if there is no expression of evangelical sorrow in my soul. He continues, the mere non-partaking of food is not fasting any more than the mere moving of the lips in prayer. So we see that there is a fasting that is not biblical fasting. So what we're talking about is biblical fasting. Now his point is that there must be a heartfelt sense of a need. A need of forgiveness, a need of seeking God, something from God that we understand that is needed in our life. So that our appetite for other things temporarily is put on hold or even temporarily fades away because you're so concerned about that particular need that food just kind of fades out of your mind temporarily. And we know that God isn't delighted with merely outward performance. For God looks at what? He looks at the heart. So therefore, unless the heart is right, we're simply fooling ourselves with some kind of formalism. And there's a lot of people that fool themselves with some kind of formalism. 
They think that everything's okay because they have done the right thing act, uh, rightly in their display of their actions. There's a lot of people that do that on Sundays. Well, I'm going to church. I've done the right thing. I'm okay before God because I've gone to church and endured a sermon. Well, God is not pleased with that just simply because we go to church and listen and sit there. He wants something to happen when we go to church. He wants to commune with us. Worship is not one way. Worship is two ways. We worship God and God does something as we worship Him. God looks at the heart. And we know that God will not accept a heart that is not right with Him. Now God also rejects fasting when it is fragrantly disobey, uh, there's fragrant disobedience to His commands. Listen to what He told Israel through the prophet Isaiah in 58, 5 and 6. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush, or to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, or an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the heavy burdens and let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. So we see here through the prophet Isaiah that he's rebuking Israel for their false fasting and praying, that they were not doing what they ought to. And he points that out very clearly. That even though they bow their heads like the bulrush and they put on sackcloths and ashes and all that, that is not accepting it. Why? Because their hearts were not right. The prophet Joel tells us in 2.13, he reveals God's desire. He says, render your hearts and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord our God is what he commands the people to do. Now, we must never let our minds dwell on simply the act of fasting, as though we have fulfilled some duty and therefore God is pleased. I mean, fasting is not to be undertaken merely for the sake of fasting. I mean, it will not merit anything in that mindset. It must come from an urgent need within and not because it is imposed from without, nor is it as if the abstaining from food is some method of holiness. But it should be something that would be spontaneous in our life, a result of being under deep conviction because of something that has transpired and not because it is imposed by someone else upon us. I mean, we see clearly from these passages that we've looked at in the Old and New Testament, that there was something inward that was urgent in the life of the people. And it's our Christian duty, a spiritual Christian duty. I mean, if you feel no appetite for the heavenly manna or desire to draw near to the throne of grace, then you must confess that to God. You must confess that your heart is cold if you feel that way. 
And God wants us to confess that to Him if our heart is cold. And we need to beg Him to stir up our heart, to renew us. Again, I remind you that the times of fasting is often determined by God's dealing with us. I mean, if we desire a spiritual improvement, we must go to Him and weep before Him in sackcloth, humbly seeking Him. I mean, the first purpose of fasting is to deny self. I mean, Jesus was clear on that. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself. So it's denying of himself. And one way is denying of himself food. It's denying the flesh. It's denying the world. And longing for spiritual things. As the psalmist cried out, I wept and chastened my soul with fasting. That was to my reproach. Paul said, Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, if the lust of the flesh is to be mortified, if it's to be subdued, fasting must be employed. That's one reason why some people have such a difficulty mortifying the flesh. They're never involved in fasting, fasting and praying. I mean, it's to stir up our devotion. It's to stir up our mind as we think about God and the duties that God would have us to do. And it's to call us as Christians to this glorious privilege. And it is a glorious privilege that we have to humbly come before God in repentance through fasting and prayer to demonstrate humility Contrition of heart, denying ourselves of that natural comfort of food in this life so that we might express that inward sorrow and grief that we have over our sin. I wrote an article recently. I don't know if they're using it or not. Tom Nettles asked me to write it for Founders Conference on Sin. He didn't tell me what to write. He said, write it on forgiveness. So I I came across one of the Puritans' uh, prayers entitled Sin. You can go to Banner of Truth and pull up that particular prayer. And it lists sins. And I mean, you read it and you sit there and say, wow, look at all the sins. And, And then you think about how God has forgiven us of all those sins that are listed there. And how wonderful forgiveness is. And when you begin to do that, when you begin to meditate upon how sinful you are and how that sin needs to be removed, there's this natural grief that you feel. If you don't feel that, then something's wrong. You need to cry out to God that you would feel that. The conviction of sin is often demonstrated in brokenness, in weeping. I mean, when the heart is rendered, it becomes obvious to yourself and to others. Think of David, his sin with Bathsheba. When he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, what happened? His heart was finally broken. The Spirit got a hold of his heart, revealed to him just how sinful he was. And he understood that he deserved death. He had broken a commandment. 
of adultery. And that commandment in the Old Testament, death. He understood that. And read the prayer and you'll see that. He understood. And he cried out to God in great sorrow and grief. He understood how sinful he was. And when our eyes are open to our guilt and filthiness, we cannot help but respond with utter unworthiness. We will respond similar to how David responded. Even the common uh, mercies of God's providence, realizing that we do not even deserve food. We do not even deserve drink. That's a blessing from God, and we should not take it for granted. So fasting makes us conscious of our wants and therefore makes us more aware of our sinfulness. Now I want you to see two truths in this particular passage that Jesus gives us that deals with prayer and fasting. And each of these truths will benefit us as Christians if we rightly apply them to our life. First, We are not to be like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Jesus says there in verse 16, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. How many times have we heard that as we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount? I hadn't counted them up. I'll let you do that. Don't do it right now. Later do it and you can let me know. But anyway, he said it over and over again. I know that. And again, he's stating, don't be like them. For they disfigure, well, first of all, he said, with sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Now, Jesus was constantly confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others who were religious leaders. And he begins all the way back in the Sermon on Mount in chapter 6, verse 1. We could say it's bookends, verse 1 to verse 24, the two bookends there. That he had much to say about their hypocrisy. How they displayed their false super spirituality. Now we have to understand that these guys displayed their religiousness before the Jews. I mean the Jews thought they were super spiritual. If they were in the church today, they would be the elders and the deacons. I mean, it's obvious to us that they're the bad guys because Jesus tells us that. But it would not be so obvious if Jesus had not told us that because when you look at all that they did, you say, man. I mean, like we've talked about before there in Matthew chapter 7, those that stand before Jesus and and you look at what they do. Miracles and and cast out demons and all these other things, you'd say, what, man, that's a spiritual guy, right? Isn't that what we would say today? So the people thought that they were spiritual. What Jesus is trying to show them is I'm going to tell you what true spirituality is and it's not what they are doing. So he speaks about how they handled their giving, how they prayed, And that's the reason why he gives us the Lord's Prayer, opposite from how they pray. Now he's dealing with how they fasted and he's going to deal with how they stored their treasures and how they tried to serve two masters. Now if you go back and read these verses, you will see how Jesus points out how they were constantly drawing attention to their self in all that they did. 
I mean, how they gloried in themselves. They wanted the people to think that they were spiritual, that they were super spiritual. And in everything that they did, and they more or less were saying, look, just look at me and just follow me and do what I do. I mean, we have that parable there in uh, Luke chapter 18 of the Pharisees standing up and as he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other guys. I thank you that I'm not like this publican over here. Well, it's sad that he was not like that publican because if he had been like that publican, he would have received justification. But anyway, we see that they were deceived. Now, let me also say that it's easy to fall into that mindset. It's easy for us to think that we are more spiritual than we really are. Jeremiah tells us, chapter 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Good verse for us to memorize. A good verse for us to constantly remind ourselves of that the heart is desperately wicked above all things. Now you say, well, that's a lost person. No, that's not only a lost person. It is a lost person, but it's us as Christians also. I mean, our hearts are deceitful, folks. And unless we are controlled by the Spirit, unless we are the Word of God, we also can be deceived as Christians. There are times that we may even think that what we are doing, that we're doing out of a pure motive, But deep down, we're really seeking to bring glory to ourselves instead of to God. Jesus says in verse 3 of chapter 6, we've already looked at, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus is talking about how the things that we do for others, ought to be done in a very humble manner. And of course, He is our example of humility. He who was in glory at the right hand of God veiled His glory and came to earth and dwelt among sinners. There's no other example better than that as far as humility is concerned. We, we can't grasp that. We cannot grasp God veiling Himself in flesh and coming to earth as far as we ought to grasp it. Now we have grasped a little bit of it, but we don't grasp the full extent of that. We won't grasp it, and I don't know if we'll fully grasp it when we get to heaven, but we'll grasp it more when we get to heaven and see how glorious He really is. When we see how glorious He really is, we'll say to ourselves, how in the world did He become man? How in the world did He put on flesh? We will be even more humbled when we see Him as He is. And He's our example. And he never sought to draw attention to himself in all that he did. He concealed. And there were times he even told his disciples, don't tell anyone. Our intent must be what? 
Well, Matthew Henry says, do it because it is a good work, not because it will give thee a good name. In all our actions, we should be influenced by a regard to the object, not the observer. So we must not even dwell on it. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is. Don't dwell on it. We must not admire ourselves. We must not pat ourselves on the back. That's what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to have our reward here on earth like the Pharisees. He wants us to desire for men to say, oh, he did such a good job. We're so proud of what he did. And sometimes it takes place in the church. We are not to be self-centered. Self-centeredness is condemned. Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And then two verses later, he goes into, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And tells us about the humility of Christ. But particularly in these things that we are addressing, giving, praying, fasting, treasures, and masters, we are to have the mind of Christ. So we are not to be like the Pharisees in their fasting, but Jesus points out that what we do, do in secret. In other words, only let your heavenly Father know what you do. In other words, the question we must ask ourselves is, Who do you want to take notice of what you do? Do you want others to take notice of what you do or do you want your heavenly Father to take notice of what you're doing? In other words, are you satisfied with only God knowing? Say you want to give something to someone to help them because they need. Are you satisfied by putting it in an envelope just to cash and laying it somewhere with their name on it, and nobody knows except you and God. That's letting your right hand, I mean your left hand, not know what your right hand is doing. If you're like the Pharisees, then you have your reward. Praise men, And it pleases the flesh, but it doesn't please God. So we aren't to draw attention to ourselves when we fast. Jesus says, don't have sad countenance. In other words, don't draw attention to how you look when you fast. And there are times we know that the king and the prophet and the priest did draw attention to their self by putting sackcloths on and sitting in dust and ashes I mean, if I did that, that would draw your attention, right? If one Sunday morning I got up here and I had sackcloth on and sat in ashes and and all that, I got your attention. Well, there were times that God commanded those who were leaders to get the people's attention. So we're not talking about that. 
Because there are times that God has to get people's attention and He used those individuals to get the people's attention. So the primary reason for that was to call the people to understand that God was not pleased, that they were under the judgment of God and and that their behavior needed to be dealt with, to reveal to the people that they had offended a holy God and that they needed to repent and that they needed to seek God corporately. So we see from this first passage that we must not be like the religious leaders. Second, Jesus indicates that as Christians we have this duty to fast. He says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now there's no specific command in Scripture binding us to fasting. Yet it's plain by precept. It's it's plain by the practice that is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We should be an outward sign of that inward mortification which is simply opposite from feasting. I mean, when you're feasting, what's going on? There's joy. I mean, you go to a west wedding, and sometimes they'll have a big feast. And you're there, you're enjoying yourself with everyone else because of what's taking place. There's cheerfulness. But this is just the opposite. A voluntary denying of ourselves of those luxuries. Now, done rightly, it should be a valuable assistant to our prayer life, particularly for afflicting our soul so that we express the sorrow that God would have us express. I mean, we are naturally prone to rest in those external things as we just looked at. Instead of resting in what? In Christ alone. Why did the Pharisees boast about their fasting twice a week? That's what he did there in Luke chapter 18. The the Pharisee got up and he stood up and he thanked God that he was not like the publican. And he said, I tithe and I fast twice a week. So why did he boast in that? Why did he boast that he was a two-timer, two-time faster in a week? Because... He was resting in the external. You say, one time, I'm going to fast twice a week. I mean, fasting is designated for humiliation, repentance, and prayer. So we know quite clearly that that wasn't what the Pharisees were doing. There was no humiliation. There was no repentance. There was no praying to God. They had perverted what God had intended to be good. They saw it as some kind of notorious work. There was this false humility. Their countenance displayed something that was not real. Many do this. They're only concerned about their outward appearance. They don't care about their heart. They took that which was to be sacred and made it some kind of ordinary 
religious work to display their piety to others, that which was to be secret before their father. They blew the trumpet, as we've already seen. When they gave their offering, they wanted the trumpet to blow so that everybody see how much they gave to the Lord. They walked around with counterfeit sadness and grief and sorrow, thereby reducing fasting to disgrace and mockery. As Hebrews says, trampling underfoot. Trampling underfoot that which is holy. It reminds me of what will be coming up in just a few weeks. There will be many people flooding to New Orleans, to Louisiana. Mardi Gras, drinking, sex. And I could go on and on, but I'm not going to bring all those things up. You know what takes place. And then what? Oh, then Lent. And they get that little ash put on them and walk around as if they're holy. Look at what we're doing. Forget about what I did for a month before then. Now I'm super spiritual because I've gone through Lent and I've given up something. What a mockery of Christianity. And we don't need to be silent about it, folks. We need to confront people like that. When Jesus gives us the opportunity, when the Spirit leads us to do it, providentially, we need to speak the truth. We need to be bold. We need to share the gospel. Every opportunity that He shows us. The other day I went to uh, pick up a a refrigerator for my uh, mother's house down Laurel that she rents out. And the guy that I started talking to, he I knew was not from around here. He had a different accent. And I knew that he was from overseas. And finally, he told me he was from Casablanca. And I figured he was Muslim. And I said, so what religion are you? And he said, a Muslim. I said, okay. I said, well, you know anything about Christianity? He said, well, you know, I've heard that Christianity... And our faith is about that far apart. I said, oh, really? I said, well, I'll tell you, i got a book here that I'd like for you to read. The Gospel of John. And you can learn the distance between your faith and Christianity. If you'll just read that book, I encourage you to read it. I'd like to talk to you more about it. And he took it. And I'm praying, Lord, cause him to read it. Cause it, as R.F. Gates used to say, to be a stick of dynamite. In other words, to blow up in his face, to wake him up to his lost condition, to wake him up to the need of Jesus Christ as he reads those words there in the Gospel of John. And the Word became light. See, we need to look for every opportunity. I'm not saying I'm good at it every day. No, but that was one opportunity that God gave me the opportunity to share with someone because he has his faults 
religion. I asked him, I said, you been to Mecca? Oh, no, but I want to. Kind of like what Prasant said last week in his sermon, the trip that he made, getting up at 3 a.m. in the morning and going to see this idol. And then as he said, after he saw it, there was no real satisfaction. He realized that that was not enough. As Paul said, it was dung. All that he had done, he said, was dung. And there's a lot of people the same way. All that they do, it's all dung. They need Christ. The Pharisees needed Christ. And Jesus points out that real Christianity does just the opposite from what the Pharisees was doing. It does not draw attention to yourself. It draws attention to Christ. Not what you do, but what Christ has done. One of the things I do when I'm witnessing someone, I say, well, what do you, what do you think it's going to take to get a person into heaven? And I like to hear what their response is because it's amazing what people will say. If they don't say, I look to Christ and Christ alone, then something's wrong. See, Jesus wasn't condemning a sorrowful account in their countenance. Because when it's a right occasion, then there's nothing wrong with it. Just like we saw there in our uh, scripture reading this morning of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah heard about Jerusalem, what happened? He, he fell down and he wept and fasted over the destruction of Jerusalem. So Jesus was speaking of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who deliberately tried to appear as if they were full of sorrow when in fact their hearts were not at all sorrowful. It was full of pride. And God gives us many incentives to stir our heart to engage in fasting. And Scripture speaks of those who fast and how God responded to them. And that should encourage us likewise to fast. Moses and David and Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, they're in the Old Testament. And they're in the New Testament. Jesus and, and Anna and Cornelius and the apostles and the elders of the church. There was private fasting and there was public fasting in the Bible. God responded in sending His Spirit to bring about blessings, spiritual blessings. The dry land needed watering, and God sent His grace to water the dry land. This land needs water, and we likewise must pray and fast that God would send His grace to water this land, folks. We cannot sit idly by and just hope. We must put our prayers into action and our fasting into action. When we look around, we see plenty of reasons to follow their examples of prayer and fasting. We know that we are surrounded by wickedness. Churches are empty. Sin flourishes. Lukewarmness prevails the church. What is the cure? Prayer and fasting. Until Christians are broken over the things that are taking place, there will be no awakening. We must be broken. We must pray that God would break us. It is Christians who must pray and fast. 
And if we have any hope for God pouring out His grace so that we might see an awakening, we must be faithful to that. The national judgments of God now hangs over our head. So we must cry out in humiliation, afflicting of soul, and repentance for the work of the Holy Spirit. Three reasons why we must fast and pray. For personal holiness. To be heard from God. And to set the captives free. The obvious meaning of Jesus' words for us is to engage in private fasting. Not that our one and only concern must be performed in this duty in a manner that is pleasing to Him, but to take every precaution to conceal our private devotion. We enter into our closet, we shut the door, and we engage in prayer and fasting. It is to be done in secret. You don't have to tell anybody. You don't have to tell me. When you walk out the door this morning, you don't have to tell me, well, pastor, I'm going to start fasting. No, just do it. Don't tell me. Don't tell anyone. We should do it all so that we might please our Heavenly Father. John Brown, that great commentator, says, this exhortation certainly does not mean that on these occasions men should assume a cheerfulness that they do not feel, but that there should be nothing in their dress or in their appearance calculated to attract notice, and that there should be no abasement in the ordinary attention to cleanliness of person or appropriate apparel, and that when, having brought the solemn service of the closet to termination, they go out in society, there should be no telling of the world what they have been engaged in. Do it in secret, what Jesus says. So what we must remember is that we are seeking to do business with God. Get it along with God, not with others. Our hearts are to be preoccupied with God. And we are praying and fasting to Him who we share our burdens with. It's His pardon. It's His favor, His grace that we are begging for. The opinions and approval of our fellow man should fade and be insignificant before the approval of our Heavenly Father. God's grace is able to sustain us and give us peace that He controls the situation and that even though it may appear just the opposite, it may appear that all hell is breaking loose. But we understand that God is in control. And we must not pretend that we have peace that is not real peace. We must seek to make it evident that we have been with God by our outward joy unspeakable and trusting in God's providence. So let us make it evident to those around that Christ's yoke is not heavy, nor is His burden heavy, but He reveals the truth, the wisdom always 
leads to loveliness. Listen to what Calvin said. The first caution necessary is what? Render your heart, not your garment. That is, God sets no value of fasting unless it accompanies with a corresponding disposition of heart. A real displeasure against sin. Sincere self-abhordance. True humiliation. True grief. That fasting is of no use of any other account than an addition and subordinance assistant to these things. Some of you know of David Brainer, David Brainer, missionary to the Indians. His um, godly example was Jonathan Edwards. I didn't know when I was reading about it. He, he was an orphan, and Jonathan Edwards took him in. And he would fast and he would pray and he sought God's leadership and guidance in his call into ministry. He had tuberculosis, so he had to deal with that in that day when they had no cure for it. There was one occasion when he was praying and and fasting and the Indians would observe him when he would do that. And one day as he was praying and fasting, you say, well, he was supposed to do it in secret. Well, he tried to do it in secret. They would observe him. They observed a, a snake coming. And they were fearful that the snake was going to strike him. And the snake came up right and got up ready to strike him. And then all of a sudden the snake moved away. And that had a tremendous impression upon the Indians that something unusual about this guy. That was a poisonous snake, and we've never seen that happen before. Well, we know why it happened. God protected him. But he said on one of his experiences during his prayer and fasting, I felt the power of intercession so precious in mortal souls for the advancement of the kingdom of my dear Lord and Savior in the world, and with all a most sweet resignation and even consolation and joy in the thought of suffering hardship, distress, and even death itself. Did you hear that? I mean, he's saying that I felt a sweet resignation and even consolation and joy in the thought of suffering hardship distress, and even death itself in promotion of it. My soul was drawn out with very much for the world, for multitudes of souls. I think I had more enlargement for sinners than for the children of God, though I felt as if I could spend my life in cries for both. I enjoyed great sweetness in communion with my dear Savior. I think I've never in my life felt such an entire wingness from this world and so much resigned to God in everything. Now, David Brainer experienced that. Why? 
He experienced that because he experienced time in prayer, fasting. We as Christians, we read something like that and we say, I want to experience that. Well, the only way you're going to experience something like that is through prayer and fasting. See, that's the reward that God gives us. If you read Jonathan Edwards, he, he says things similar to that. When he'd go out into the field and he was praying and fast and the experiences that he had with God in that, in that communion, that sweet communion with his Savior. Andrew Murray, another individual, lived from 1828 to 1917. He writes, fasting helps to express, to deepen, and to confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything. To sacrifice ourselves to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. Are you to that point? That you're willing to sacrifice anything, anything for the kingdom. See, that's what Jesus was talking about. If any man come after me, let him deny himself. In other words, be willing to sacrifice anything for the kingdom of God. David Brainer died at the age of 27. He did more for God, for Christ, for his Savior in those short years he lived than most of us do in our entire lifetime. Living to an old age. Why? Why was he able to do that? Because he was a man of God that spent time with his Savior and his Savior used him mightily. Read his journal and see how God used a man. And there's many more than David Brainer. That's just one that I'm pointing out. But God uses men who, who spend time with God. You want to be used of God. Spend time with God. Spend time with God instead of in the things of this world. We waste so much time, folks. You know it, and I know it. I know in my own life I waste so much time. We need to spend more time with God. And if we will be willing to spend more time with God, we will be rewarded. I guarantee that. God has promised it. God would do it. Get off your phones. Get off the computer. Get out of the TV room. Spend time with God. If we will begin to spend time with God, God will do something. God will do something in your life, in my life, and in this church. Do you want God to do that? I do. But the sacrifice is that we must spend more time with Him. We must be obedient to what Christ is saying here. And we'll see the blessings of God come upon. I guarantee it. But we must be willing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words of our Lord and Savior. How convicting they are. For we realize that we can so often be like the Pharisees. 
loving self instead of loving Christ. How we pray that you would bring conviction. How we pray that you would humble us. Cause us to repent. Cause us to look to Christ and Christ alone for that which we need. Cause us to spend time with Thee. I pray for those, Father, who don't spend time with You because they've never been truly changed by Your grace. Their hearts have not been changed. They have no desire for these spiritual things. I pray that today would be the day that their desire would be changed. Work in their life. Open their eyes to see their need to cry out to Christ in true repentance and faith. Bring them to Christ. I pray for us as Christians, Father. Humble us. Work in us. Cause us to quit wasting time. Cause us to focus on those things which are most important for people all around us are dying and enter into an everlasting hell. And we're so concerned about the things of this world. Cause us, Father, to be things of concerned about the things that are important. Cause us to have this communion that Paul had, that Jonathan Edwards had, that David Brainer had, that Andrew Murray had, so many others in the Christian faith had such faith, had such determination, had such commitment. Cause us to be like that, Father, for your glory. In your honor, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.